Hi everyone, I'm Sewan. I'm Akash, and this is Now What? We're two Harvard College students trying to make sense of this post-corona reality. As we students deal with the unfortunate reality of attending online classes, losing internships and job offers, and social distancing, our future looks increasingly uncertain. Our hope is that each episode on the podcast features experts from a variety of fields who offer clarity, breaking down the current events shaping our world, and sharing advice uniquely tailored to our generation. Today, we're joined by John Park, director of the Korea Project at the Harvard Kennedy School. Dr. Park's core research projects focus on the political economy of the Korean Peninsula, nuclear proliferation, economic statecraft, Asia and trade negotiations, and North Korean cyber activities. He previously directed Northeast Asian Track 1.5 Dialogues at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C., um, he advises Northeast Asia policy-focused officials in the U.S. government. Dr. Park worked at Goldman Sachs, where he specialized in U.S. military privatization financing projects. Um, he earlier worked in Goldman Sachs' M&A advisory group in Hong Kong and the Boston Consulting Group's financial services practice in Seoul. Dr. Park is a commentator on Asian geopolitical issues on CNN, BBC, CNBC, Fox Business, Fox News, Bloomberg TV, the list goes on. He also advises institutional investors on geopolitical risk in Asia-Pacific markets. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Park, for joining us. Uh, and, you know, just to start, it would be interesting to delve a bit into the roller coaster that's been U.S.-North Korea relations. Um, you know, of course, last year, Donald Trump became the first sitting U.S. president to step into North Korea and ended up eliciting wows globally for actually meeting Kim Jong-un. Um, but the relationship has been nothing short of rocky, uh, both, you know, oftentimes trade insults here and there at each other. And recently, uh, Kim Jong-un's sister, in fact, came out publicly discouraging any sort of future um, forum between uh, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. Uh, so I wanted to hear your thoughts on the development in the U.S.-North Korea relationship and where you think it'll go from here. Sure. Well, thank you very much, Akash and Sehwan, for having me on. Uh, I think when we look at the U.S.-North Korea dynamics, it really is a function of two leaders. You know, we have President Trump on the U.S. side and Chairman Kim Jong-un on the North Korean side. And we, we basically started in this cycle in 2017 of ratcheting up of tensions to the point where it looked like there could be conflict on the Korean Peninsula, probability a level that we hadn't seen in decades. And from that, we quickly went to love letters, you know, the, the letters that went on directly between the two leaders. And then in 2018, we had a season of summitry it uh, seems like background noise now, but it really was unprecedented. You had the U.S. North Korean leaders meeting three times in the context of the inter-Korean leadership, President Moon Jae-in in South Korea and Chairman Kim in North Korea meeting over four times in that capacity. And then in the North Korea-China, this is with President Xi Jinping meeting over five times. So viewed in that context, uh, it's remarkable the uh, 180 that went on. Uh, and the summits, you know, while they uh, lasted for, frankly, a long period of time, didn't materialize into the breakdown, breakout, I should say, of uh, the type of inter-Korean uh, progress as well as U.S.-North Korea progress on what we call the denuclearization process overall. And now we're at a stage where it looks like there could be another escalation cycle. Uh, very recently, and as you alluded, the uh, uh, younger sister of the North Korean leader, Kim Yo-jong, uh, essentially oversaw the demolition of the inter-Korean liaison office in Kaesong inside of North Korea. And this is, uh, I, I think, a, a very visual symbol of the collapse and the piece-by-piece -piece unmantling of the inter-Korean progress. Where does that leave the U.S.-North Korea dynamic? Uh, recently, uh, this was just a few days ago, the uh, U.S. Special Representative for North Korea Policy, Steve Began, who is also dual-hatted as a Deputy, Deputy Secretary of State uh, on the U.S. side went to South Korea to try to figure out if there's a way to get back to negotiations. It doesn't look good. And so uh, I would basically say the two points to keep in mind is that we have the presidential elections coming up in November, but independent of that, we basically saw the uh, demise of the summitry between the two leaders after Hanoi. This was the last major summit between uh, U.S. and North Korean leaders. And the message was quite clear. What the North Koreans put on the table which was the uh, crown jewel of their nuclear weapons program, uh, the production facility at Yongbyon, was viewed as, by the United States as being not sufficient. 
So we're concerned that North Korea now is focused on demonstrating capabilities again to try to get back to a higher level in terms of its bargaining position to perhaps restart negotiations on the nuclear front, but from a position of strength. And that strength comes from demonstrating capabilities that they hadn't shown before. Uh, and this uh, is a big allusion to the phrase that they mentioned towards the end of last year, which was unveiling a new strategic weapon. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Thank you. Could you talk a little bit more about that strategic weapon? I think for a lot of us, I guess, general public, um, looking into the news and sort of seeing how the relationship has fallen apart piece by piece, especially with the Kezong news recently, I think a lot of us were sort of surprised. And I think if you, if you, I guess, aren't an expert on this issue, it can be sort of hard to see where that line suddenly became um, so unfriendly. So I'm sort of curious, like, what you think the impetus was for uh, the shift and how we can sort of go about understanding what that cause might have been. Yes, yeah, so I think the big part of the shift was the lead up to Hanoi. Uh, the Hanoi summit was uh, something that was built up as uh, what could have been the beginning of a process, not like a complete deal. Uh, denuclearization, a lot of the experts focused on what is the definition of denuclearization. But if you look closely at what the negotiators were doing, they were trying to build a process knowing that denuclearization would essentially require a lot of this kind of consultation. There's discussion about opening up a U.S. liaison office uh, a few steps below an embassy in Pyongyang uh, so that you would have U.S. officials, U.S. negotiators on the ground uh, to continue the difficult work of figuring out what the intricate steps would be. But I think this falling out period comes from very high stakes in Hanoi where uh, you know, Chairman Kim puts on this table the Yongbyon nuclear complex and dismantling it in return for lifting of sanctions. He asked for five of the 11 UN Security Council resolution sanctions to be lifted. But from the U.S. perspective, that was deemed uh, to be not enough. And if anything, Yongbyon was uh, interpreted uh, and viewed as a decrepit old facility and a series of facilities, I should say, and not worth the lifting of sanctions. Uh, so that, that's a part where the dynamics uh, literally you know, crumbled on the spot. And on the long train ride from Vietnam back to North Korea, you know, Chairman Kim basically sees his overall diplomatic game plan in tatters. Uh, in the aftermath of that, so the strong statements to uh, South Korea, condemnation of uh, South Korea is, becomes more vocal. Uh, and that's essentially where the inter-Korean relationship goes cold. Uh, and also, while letters do continue to flow between uh, President Trump and uh, Chairman Kim, uh, the message is quite clear to the United States from North Korea. Uh, you know, if, if there is no interest in the Yongbyon complex, uh, then there's no deal. And that's where we're at right now. What it could allude to in terms of the next steps, that's what we're all waiting to see. But it doesn't look like we're going to have a resurrection of any of these type of high-level dynamics for the time being. Uh, and if anything, right now, the sense that from a North Korean perspective, the ball is in the U.S. court. From a U.S. perspective, the ball is in the North Korean court. When we've seen this configuration in the past, you know, months and years have uh, flown by. And so we're, we're concerned that this is going to lead to that kind of stalemate again. I just wanted to explore a bit more. You've uh, mentioned how, you know, there's this flowing of love letters uh, between the parties. And obviously Trump is quite the unconventional president. And his approach to diplomacy, particularly with North Korea, certainly stands as no exception there. Um, and... I was curious, you know, Trump managed to have that meeting with Kim Jong-un. He's managed to engage him in some sort of communication with the exchange of these love letters. And given how high the tensions were in 2017, as you mentioned, when they ratcheted up, um, there has been, you know, some sort of dips in tensions, some sort of escalations in the tensions. I, um, do you think that Donald Trump um, has a fundamental impact on U.S.-North Korean relations? In other words, do you think without Donald Trump, if you had another U.S. president, would there be a noticeable difference in U.S.-North Korean relationships? Or is this something that, you know, even with the forum, which turned out to be quite inconsequential, that these are kind of more like dramatic theatrical events, as some critics allege, that haven't really amounted to much? So, gosh, one of the amazing things is that there, there is agreement among uh, many of the establishment Democratic uh, analysts and former negotiators that what President Trump did in terms of direct negotiations or this kind of symmetry with Chairman Kim was the right move. And it, it is quite startling uh, on the surface of it. 
uh, their view is that if you want to cut through the many layers of difficulties in trying to get a breakthrough agreement, you really have to do it at the leader to the leader level. Uh, starting from working level and trying to work your way up, it, it just it hasn't proven to be effective in the past. But while there is that overall kind of agreement that that step was correct and that was the right step, uh, the way in which President Trump and his team has managed this process uh, is the target of a lot of criticism, that there were tremendous numbers of wasted opportunities because they didn't get into the technical discussions. They didn't do uh, more than just the logistics preparation for a big summit. Uh, they didn't carve out the details and what could have been early drafts of agreements that they could have you know, elevated to the, the higher level and so forth. Uh, and so that's, that's the element of where we're at right now. Uh, but the amazing thing is uh, John Bolton, who was the National Security Advisor during this period of summitry in 2018, he's come up with a telltale book and tell-all book. And, and inside of it, he goes into a lot of detail in terms of how the Trump administration was preparing for these summits, what their thinking was. Uh, it is amazing in terms of a treasure trove of all of the inside baseball kind of scoops. The thing is, in the United States, that book has uh, essentially become background noise. It, it was very uh, much in the headlines when it first came out, but there are a lot of things going on in the U.S. However, that book is circulating more, and the insights and the revelations from that book are impacting policy in a lot of capitals around the world. And if you look at it in the context of Seoul and Pyongyang, as well as Beijing and Tokyo, that book is being read uh, almost as if it were the textbook in terms of trying to understand how things uh, played out in the past and what insights, what kind of tells one might be able to derive from that. And so from that perspective, uh, I'm curious, and this is something that we're trying to track, is how will the governments in the region adjust their policies based on some of the core revelations in that book? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, now that you've brought up the book, I was curious to hear your thoughts on that. Whether you think, you know, as you, as you mentioned, it's it sort of become background noise, at least here in the USA. It managed to catch the headlines for a little bit, but, you know, it didn't manage to catalyze that longstanding level of discussion. Um, and, you know, now we've obviously shifted gears and looked at other issues. Uh, but when it comes to having an impact on U.S.'s diplomatic relations or U.S.'s position in the global community, particularly with regards to North Korea, do you think that these kinds of revelations that, you know, um, Bolton is like a great example of it, but I think even in general, there are leaks that come out of the White House and there are a lot of these sort of revelations as to just how unorthodox um, and you know, potentially dicey the whole Trump administration really is. Do you think that those kinds of revelations uh, really do have that sort of strong influence or is it really more just a dramatic sort of headline catcher that manages to like subside uh, within a few days? So to me, if the book didn't reveal uh, important nuggets for various policymakers and key capitals, it would be ignored, it wouldn't be mentioned. Uh, but the fact that you have repudiation of the uh, book itself and key passages from it, I think gives a sense that it is striking a chord. Uh, in one kind of interesting way, it presents an opportunity of both the North Koreans, uh, as well as the, the U.S. side and Trump administration officials, uh, focus on trying to undermine, undermine the credibility of Bolton's book. I think that's a very unique tell. It's a sense that it does strike a chord. One of the parts that plays out a lot in uh, media in South Korea is that uh, Bolton's revelation in the book, you know, his, his framing of it, that Trump was never interested in negotiations at all. He just wanted the publicity from it and that he benefited a lot from that. And the showman that he is, uh, it would be one way to kind of, you know, uh, essentially put his capabilities on solving this very difficult problem uh, in the headlines, in the uh, mind's eye of international media and publics. But beyond that, you know, the, the notion of grinding out the hard work of denuclearization, Trump wasn't committed to that uh, at all. And so for the recalibration of that statement now, uh, and a lot of focus uh, on uh, what Trump uh, had basically said, but through the lens and through the, the book of, uh, of uh, Bolton here, uh, it's going to be interesting if there is a concerted effort to try to get some kind of traction going on uh, U.S.-North Korea dynamics. Uh, one low-hanging fruit is to essentially have those two parties uh, undermine and try as best they can uh, undermine what Bolton said in the book. Just a quick follow-up. I used, mentioned this a little bit earlier, but 
Also, I wanted to look at the Asia side and how different governments are now really this book is like, you know, the very important document that they never ended up with in the first place um, and sort of adjusting their policies based on that. Um, are there any sort of specifics or maybe like the major sort of revelations from this book that you think Asian countries or North Korea are taking away from and using to adjust their policies? Yeah, I, I think one big part of it is uh, the element of where President Trump is uh, right now in terms of the administration cycle of things. Uh, a large part of the logic of what happened in the past, it's not so much that these are revelations we didn't know about. It's uh, from uh, an insider so close to the president to have it such, uh, such a richly documented book it validates a lot of the statements and media reports from that time period. Uh, and so I think what's swirling now is it's almost giving ammunition to the opposition parties in all the respective countries where you have the incumbent leader uh, who had dealt with uh, President Trump in the past. It's almost uh, giving more, you know, kind of cannon fodder for some pretty, you know, difficult domestic political situations, especially in a place like South Korea. Uh, so as it's playing out right now, it's almost adding fuel to those uh, types of uh, political rivalries that were already deep to begin with. Um, I think when it, when it goes, you know, when we look at the step forward, uh, how countries view the credibility and the commitment of statements and, and uh, promises coming out of the Trump White House, those are going to be viewed with skepticism. Uh, not that there was a high degree of confidence in the past, but uh, one thing that's unique about you know, Bolton and the way he wrote his book is extremely detailed. And this is someone who is very meticulous in taking notes to begin with. So it's almost like he curated his own archives. Uh, and the detail with which he wrote the book, uh, I think, gives a lot of ammunition for those who are trying to piece together that kind of message that you can't do deals with Trump. Yeah, certainly a lot of those revelations in the book are staggering, which is why I can see you know, like the Trump administration being a tad apprehensive about the whole thing and trying its best to uh, at least move forward and make sure that the book doesn't have too much of an impact. I mean, um, all the allegations about him posing up to dictators or even batting an eye with the Uyghur in, like, internment camps uh, for Chinese favors. It's all crazy stuff. Um, and kind of just uh, like a little bit more broadly about North Korea, just a question in mind. You know, there are, um, there are people in the U.S. and globally, in fact, who are a bit more skeptical about North Korea's might, thinking that you know it's a lot more showmanship, it's a lot more theatrical um, sort of bravado here and there, but it really isn't too much of a like, of a sort of global threat, and that North Korea's military power um, wanes in comparison to that of uh, the U.S. or uh, a lot of other nuclear powers in the world right now. So, um, what are your thoughts on those kinds of allegations? Do you think, in fact, that it's a bit more of just hype and that North Korea wouldn't actually um, be that much of a peril? Or, or do you think that, in fact, North Korea does represent a rather grave danger, perhaps militaristically, perhaps sort of diplomatically at large, that needs to be addressed immediately? Well, if we go back to 2017 uh, and look at that time period, my senior colleagues and I are writing a case study on that particular period uh, and how uh, key decision leaders and people like General Vincent Brooks navigated through some of those uh, very turbulent waters there. But if you look at the 2017 period, uh, in a very short period of time, North Korea's testing cycle uh, surpasses technological barriers in terms of the weaponry and the arsenal uh, that they're putting forward. It's not a surprise that North Korea was working on these separate technologies. It's just that the uh, intelligence estimates back then said that North Korea was five to seven years away from demonstrating some of these capabilities. There were moments in 2017, and particularly the second half of 2017, where North Korea was demonstrating a new technology, a breakthrough technology, almost on a weekly basis. So it gives you a sense of how, uh, at that time, National Security Advisor General McMaster was uh, very keen on sending the message to North Korea that this window of opportunity was closing. If North Korea didn't desist from this testing cycle, uh, that the military option would essentially be the only option left. Uh, and so the question of why the U.S. was so keen on making sure that uh, Kim Jong-un stopped the testing cycle 
uh, you know, it's around four letters, ICBM, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, ICBM capabilities that North Korea demonstrated the first test of it on July 4th of 2017. Uh, this thing was lofted, so it went higher than it went farther. But if you uh, look at the analysis from the ballistic missile expert at that time period, if you flatten the trajectory, it would have the ability to reach Alaska and some parts of Western United States, the West Coast. And then later that month, July 28th, North Korea conducted second ICBM test. This one, same thing, it's lofted higher than it goes farther, but if you flatten its trajectory, uh, you know, ever so more of the content of the United States. By the time that North Korea tests its third ICBM, the Hwasong-15, uh, this is November 28th, uh, the type of technologies that they're demonstrating were, uh, in, you know, by a lot of estimates, able to range the totality of the content of the United States. So by uh, the latter part of 2017, North Korea becomes the clear and present danger to the American homeland. You know, no one touches the American homeland. That, that is a golden rule. And it's during that time period, North Korea bumps up to number one in terms of the threat to America. It supplants terrorism. So it gives you a sense of the gravity of the situation. Uh, those technologies have not gone away. During the summits, North Korea didn't test, but there are a lot of open source reports saying that North Korea was estimated to be cranking out uh, more and more nuclear weapons and basically the type of deployable nuclear weapons. So the factory was, was uh, still going on uh, irrespective of, of uh, the suspension on you know, the physical testing of these capabilities. So the last point I, I mentioned now is we are uh, looking at a period where North Korea, uh, it still hasn't mentioned the details on it, but in framing this new strategic weapon, uh, it, it's giving us a lot of pause. Because if, if we go through the process of elimination, it's unlikely to be another ICBM test. They've already done that. So it doesn't reach a category of new. Uh, they've done a war uh, underground nuclear test, so they you know, check that box. So then, you know, through this process of elimination, what could that be? Uh, you know, I think the concern is that this thing could be an atmospheric demonstration of a nuclear weapon. So if they want to go that route, uh, and it's, it's their decision if they're going to go that route, or if they've already made the preparations and we're seeing the beginning of that cycle, uh, it is a type of capability that would remove uh, essentially that element from Hanoi, which was a U.S. assessment that the North Korean nuclear weapons program wasn't that far along. And as a result, the U.S. wasn't really compelled to give them much for it. Uh, so from the demonstration of the capabilities to try to get the uh, kind of a stronger position in a negotiating table format, uh, there, there are factors in place that makes that concern, I think, a very real one and a very concerning one. Definitely a, a bit of a dark picture painted there when it comes to sort of U.S.-North Korean relations and North Korea's potential impact. And so if we are to accept the fact that North Korea does represent quite a grave danger, um, not one to be trivialized or sort of meddled with nonchalantly, then how can the United States or, you know, honestly, the global community sort of largely, how can they negotiate um, with North Korea effectively and actually get North Korea um, sort of under control in that regard? And um, you actually mentioned earlier that Donald Trump had r received praise for sort of connecting directly with Kim Jong-un do you think that it still revolves around building that connection directly with Kim Jong-un and his sort of close advisors, or should there be another route that's considered or taken? So with that approach, uh, I think it's viewed as necessary to have the leader-to-leader -leader, uh, contact and interaction, but not sufficient, that you still have to do the heavy lifting, you have to do the technical negotiations, you have to hammer out uh, concrete uh, deals and agreements and so forth and lay out a mechanism and a process. We, we didn't really get to see uh, much work in, the, in that area, despite uh, the president uh, and, the, and the chairman on the North Korean side and then various officials on both sides meeting. Uh, but that was largely in preparation for these summits. I think at, at the end of the day, uh, it comes to the very inconvenient fact that given where North Korea is with its nuclear weapons development, North Korea is a nuclear weapon state. That's something that officially the U.S. government has said that they would not recognize North Korea as a nuclear weapon state. But in practice, a lot of the countries in the region already do. And their view is, let's try to freeze and cap the program so North Korea does not produce any more, uh, start dismantling some of their facilities, and then eventually uh, one day get to the minimal nuclear deterrent, the warheads that are deployable that the North Koreans have. 
that wrapped up is arms control. And you can see how that is a very sensitive uh, topic because again, if you engage and you call it arms control, implicitly you're recognizing North Korea as a current nuclear weapon state. Uh, and likewise, if you go through the motions of breaking down each of the steps, you know, North Korea is very keen on being recognized as a nuclear weapon state. So the idea of how you carve a process around a very delicate situation is an important element if we do see the resumption of nuclear talks, nuclear negotiations, uh, be it in a second Trump administration or in a first Biden administration. So those are some of the realities that don't change in terms of uh, who wins the November election here in the United States. Uh, thank you. Um, sort of switching gears a little bit, I think for me, obviously, um, in the spring, and you have been talking about COVID for a while in class, I think before the rest of the world knew how big of an impact it would be. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how North Korea has responded? Again, you know, your primary work on sanctions evasion and how North Korea is innovative in finding alternative streams of revenue or sort of reacting to geopolitical um, issues is really interesting. And I'm sort of wondering, you know, how do you think the regime has been similarly innovative, if so, in the time of COVID? Sure. I, I think when it comes to innovation, uh, the bigger focus uh, is on being proactive. Uh, North Korea in January, ahead of every other government, every other country, sealed its own borders. Uh, and that's uh, you know, predominantly with uh, China as well as Russia, because the concern that with the trade, uh, people going back and forth across the border, uh, that could be a transmission mechanism for COVID-19. And so, you know, officially right now, the North Korean government states that there are zero COVID cases in the country. Uh, very few people believe that. Uh, but there are two interesting features of that. One is the North Korean regime has been very consistent in showing all these practices that they've put in place uh, to try to make sure that they uh, are in the preventive mode because they can ill afford a situation where COVID spreads. It's a very fragile healthcare system in North Korea to begin with. But if there is innovation to, your, to your, the heart of your question, uh, there are some efforts there in terms of quarantining, the way that they can monitor uh, when North Korea uh, reopened their schools, uh, you saw a lot of practices that uh, looked very well thought out and implemented. North Korea has since uh, canceled schools again. I think that's uh, you know, not a particularly good sign. Uh, but the element that is striking is that the North Korean government has been very proactive in showing uh, the numbers in terms of people who've been put in quarantine and then people have left. One of the interesting things, though, with that is that there's a discrepancy between those two numbers. The question is, for those who don't leave quarantine, what does that mean? Are these, in fact, some of the early tracking of victims of uh, COVID-19? Um, but the second feature is that there is very little testing that we uh, can piece together that's been going on inside North Korea. Chad O'Carroll at NK News uh, just the other day wrote a piece saying that uh, their estimate is that North Korea has done less than 1,000 tests inside of North Korea. And that could be one reason why uh, the North Korean government states that there's zero cases, because there is exceedingly low uh, numbers being tested for this. Uh, but the bottom line in terms of COVID-19 is that we see proxies, and that's the part where, as outside researchers, uh, it's interesting to track. Along the border region, there was uh, an episode a couple of weeks ago that was reported in Daily NK. Uh, this is a news source based out of uh, Seoul, where they use uh, connections through defectors or family members uh, in the North Korean part, areas that are close to communications using cell phones and things like that. But there was a, a noted case of paratyphoid. And the amazing thing is the granularity, the amount of detail that came out of that. And the symptoms of paratyphoid look very similar to the symptoms of COVID-19. And so I think while Officially, again, there are zero reported cases by the North Korean government of COVID-19. There uh, is enough tracking of information about outbreaks and, uh, you know, symptoms in key areas of North Korea. that I think that gives us an ability to at least track where uh, in North Korea these type of incidents are popping up. Speaking of sort of coronavirus, um, I was curious to hear your thoughts on how the pandemic impacts uh, North Korea's external relationships with the wider global community. Um, foreseeably, if there are medical innovations, for instance, that are spearheaded 
um, that, you know, obviously like a vaccine is an extreme example, but even, but, but even if there are any medical innovations that ameliorate the impact of coronavirus, uh, would that perhaps benefit um, North Korea's sort of position in the global community when it comes to pursuing reconciliation of sorts and being a bit friendlier instead of having its aggressive tone if North Korea feels that it can sort of seek to gain and benefit from having that international cooperation? Uh, interestingly, it's happened from another approach. Uh, when North Korea sealed off its borders in January, uh, the U.S. government, Secretary of State Pompeo, reached out and basically made a public statement saying that the U.S. is standing by, you know, ready and willing to provide medical equipment, some of the protective gear uh, to help uh, North Korea this endeavor. It, it, I don't recall seeing any reports of the North Koreans, you know, reciprocated on that offer. And likewise, the uh, South Korean side has, has been consistently offering assistance in this area. So you see different countries trying to use it as a way through humanitarian mechanisms to try to reestablish contact. Uh, but up until now, the North Korean government uh, has not uh, responded to those overtures. However, it looks like there is a pretty robust uh, kind of channel of cooperation between the North Koreans and the Chinese on this front. Um, and so it does look like the North Koreans are receiving assistance, but uh, it's something that is uh, below the radar and something that is being kept uh, very discreet by both parties. Uh, yeah, thank you. No, I think it's really interesting to see how, um, you sort of mentioned this in class as well, but different countries and different regimes will sort of put this crisis to, to good use in a way to sort of further their own agendas. Um, and sort of along those lines, but switching gears a little bit, I think for me, you know, I'm obviously in Hong Kong, and it's interesting as well to see how uh, you see in Asia, we're a little bit farther along with coronavirus. We've had multiple waves. Um, but on the other end, there are a lot of different political issues that I think are sort of springing up in the wake of coronavirus. Um, and I'm not sure if this is necessarily the case, but a lot of people, I think, at the news might sort of draw connections between the two and talk about how coronavirus, again, maybe China and the national security law might have been something that could have been implemented because of the way that the city was in the wake of coronavirus as well. I'm sort of wondering if you think there's any sort of connections between various political issues in Asia at the moment um, and COVID-19 and how we had to adjust our lives to that. Yeah, I mean, uh, Sewan, uh, I, I commend you and, and your classmates uh, in our class you dealt with a lot last semester. It's uh, remarkable, and I think a testament to your resilience uh, as a group, but COVID certainly came up in a lot of our discussions. Uh, as it relates to Asia, as you pointed out, there, there's uh, a lot of muscle memory because of earlier outbreaks from SARS uh, to MERS in the case of uh, South Korea, there's a Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Uh, and there was also an outbreak of swine flu that enabled the governments here to learn uh, certain practices. So they're ready to deploy pretty quickly. Uh, this is the amazing way to view the world right now. And it's quite shocking in its simplicity. Uh, you have governments at the national level and countries that uh, have been able to do the maintaining the opening of the economy. So keeping their economies open while tackling COVID at the same time. So this idea of chewing gum and walking at the same time. And then those governments that clearly have not been able to, where they had to shut down their economy. Uh, my colleague at the Kennedy School economist, Jason Furman, calls it the self-induced coma. Uh, and that you're looking at the situation where because of economic necessity now, you have governments uh, in those uh, cases in that category who are trying to do the reopening. In some cases, they've already done that uh, and they failed. And so they had a spike in cases and they're now basically shutting down again. Uh, and so if you think of COVID, COVID is the great equalizer in that sense, because in some cases, irrespective of your democratic government or you're an autocratic, uh, you know, autocratic uh, government, the, there is no clear delineation that you know, democratic governments are more effective in tackling COVID and keeping their economies running at the same time. The, the record is mixed under both. But I think what is instructive in the case of Asia, though, uh, one factor that can be uh, highly Kind of revelatory is whether these governments have gone through these public health crises in the past. And so there are infrastructures and practices in place where things like testing uh, and tracing are, are built in and then enabled with technology. And then also 
you know, in the case of democratic uh, governments, in the case of South Korea, they're able to rely on technology, uh, but do it in a way that uh, it's not, you know, intrusive to the level where technology is used in other cases to monitor. Uh, and so there, there's a fine balancing act, but uh, I, I am struck at how the world can be divided into one of those two categories right now. Definitely. And I think we're also curious a little bit about how um, sort of Jews have reacted as well to the coronavirus, um, not necessarily in just like a public health sense, but also, um, for instance, I guess with Hong Kong, various protests, like protesters coming out into the streets again, or with China sort of like putting being a little stronger in their policies towards Hong Kong as well. Um, so just wondering if you think there might be a link there as well, just with the public health crisis and how various governments are now sort of pushing their own agendas as well. I think uh, there, there is a, a phenomenon earlier on where in response to COVID, uh, there were certain pathways that made it easier for governments to use uh, measures. Back in the day, they were called civil liberties uh, and protection of the rights of citizens. Uh, those were superseded because of the needs of the state based on this kind of national emergency. Uh, but now I, I think we're, we're seeing uh, a type of debate that focuses more on economic uh, you know, prosperity, how to open up economies and then maintain economies that is uh, at the forefront. That's certainly the case in the United States. If, if you look at what's happening across this country, uh, different states, uh, governors and mayors, uh, essentially this is something that is front and center, but it's a great equalizer because you see a lot of leaders around the world also having to contend with this. Uh, as it relates to these kind of opportunities uh, presented by COVID-19, if anything, the opportunity moment I think has passed because it is such a dire situation. And in many cases, uh, it's almost trying to keep, you know, that kind of nostril above the waterline. Whereas earlier in the crisis, where the, the rates of infection weren't as high, you did see some governments and some entities trying to use this as a way to, you know, increase political control or, or some way to muzzle opposition, things along those lines. Definitely, sort of going off of that, I guess, now more towards Hong Kong, I suppose, um, with the protests and everything that's going on, we sort of want to get your take, given your sort of general expertise on Asia as well. Um, you know, what does this mean for Hong Kong? I think this is like the biggest question that people are grappling with, including myself and my family, um, just because, you know, it's a case where it's not like this moment, this second after the law has been passed, you know, I'm in danger. Uh, you, you don't really feel it that way. And I think it feels more like perhaps this will just happen gradually and gradually and you'll read about it in the news and all of a sudden Hong Kong is not at all what you thought it was. Um, I'm just sort of curious in your opinion and in your sort of understanding of how Asia and even like the economy has relied on Hong Kong as separate from China, how that might change and what that means for the rest of Asia more broadly. Sure. I think when it came to Hong Kong's future after the handover in 99, uh, there were two major factors at play, two really big factors. One was the U.S. support of Hong Kong, uh, not necessarily the U.K. support, but the U.S. support viewing Hong Kong as essentially this bastion of democracy. Uh, and then the second was the uh, utility of Hong Kong as this gateway to global finance and how the government in Beijing had this mode of developing and learning from Hong Kong and this idea that cooperation was really important in order to continue elevating these uh, growth projects on, on the mainland. But those two factors are no longer at play. One of the eerie statements coming out of a Chinese government official was that uh, Hong Kong is no longer unique. You know, in mainland China, there are four or five other uh, major cities that can play this uh, function in terms of financial services hub. It won't be one city completely replacing Hong Kong, but I think the message was clear that if you kind of amalgamate all of these different offerings, uh, you can weather the storm of Hong Kong not playing that crucial role uh, as the, uh, the sole gateway or the primary gateway. And then with the U.S. message, uh, I think it's been the type that uh, it's not that the U.S. has fundamentally completely abandoned Hong Kong, but you don't see that kind of robust support of Hong Kong that we saw in the, in the past across the board, very consistent type of uh, uh, support of uh, Hong Kong as this very unique phenomenon. But the other thing to put into context is that we are now in a situation of a U.S.-China trade war. And so with that, uh, the priority focus is shifting elsewhere. And so the dynamics of looking at what's taking place in Hong Kong in that kind of context, uh, you're looking at larger 
uh, you know, fish to fry or larger, uh, you know, issues to tackle. And so uh, with this type of current situation, uh, those two factors, uh, they're unlikely to be resurrected anytime soon as well. Uh, but I think the big focus in terms of trying to make sure that there are assurances and that there are support, I think other countries are coming online in terms of expressing that support. Um, but there is this increasing tension now in terms of what happens next for Taiwan. And so that's a big focus uh, as this broader trend in, in a you know, series of events uh, are continuing to move on forward. You uh, mentioned the U.S.-China trade war, as well as the fact that China perhaps perpetuating this notion that Hong Kong no longer is as special as it perhaps once was, particularly economically, uh, China's economy has ramped up and you have other cities that, while not perfect substitutes, uh, you know, like together can uh, potentially offer that sort of economic opportunity that Hong Kong does. And I was curious then to hear, based on all of that, um, when you know, Mike Pompeo came out saying that Hong Kong is no longer enjoying that degree of autonomy, um, do, you think that those do you think that those kinds of statements from the US, do they have extensive implications, both on China's treatment with, uh, up to the Hong Kong, as well as the US-China relationship, uh, if you know, Hong Kong is perhaps no longer as special to China, um, and that, that kind of fiery incendiary rhetoric uh, keeps going on in this sort of raging trade war? So, Akash, there, the interesting aspect uh, related to uh, the mainland in Hong Kong, uh, you know, first and foremost, as much as there was that emphasis on the special administrative region and a lot of the agreements put in place uh, after the handover in 99, uh, one way to address your question is uh, the thinking at that time period. This is where history and the application of history, what my colleague Graham Allison and his group is doing, uh, it's very informative in terms of looking at what's happening now. Uh, during the handover period, the view was this model that was Hong Kong, democracy as well as free markets, would essentially spread. And this would essentially become the catalyst for fundamental transformation inside of the mainland. It's not that there would be regime change, it's just transformation as leaders on the mainland thought that this is the model. You know, if we scale up and tweak and apply this model, uh, then we can meet our uh, overall growth and things along the lines of priority uh, projects for the Communist Party of China. That thesis, if you look at in you know contemporary uh, situation here, uh, China and the central government in China is not in that position. They don't view it in terms of you know Hong Kong being indispensable or being the source of a model that they're going to adopt. If anything, it's the broader system in the mainland uh, that we've seen develop. Uh, with economic prosperity has come increasing capabilities on the military and the traditional security side, growth of technology, all of these things where the importance, not in terms of just the monetary uh, generation capacity of Hong Kong, but the fact that this was the type of formula, the type of model, uh, you know, I think there's a view on the mainland that the Chinese have their own model. And so from that perspective, it makes the efforts uh, very difficult. You know, right now the U.S. is uh, prioritizing applying sanctions on Hong Kong, basically saying that Hong Kong no longer is the definition meeting the criteria of an open democracy, free markets, uh, and some of the players there uh, now, given the, the connections to the mainland, uh, are going to be the focus of U.S. sanctions. So that type of approach, uh, I, I think when you look at it from the broader events and this huge momentum that's taking place, uh, it's unlikely to modify change behavior in terms of what China is doing right now. Uh, and so I think when we put it into that broader context and looking at some of the factors at play, uh, this is something that the momentum for the time being is shifting in terms of the game plan coming out of Beijing. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess more broadly taking that U.S.-China uh, relationship into context, um, you know, for instance, uh, you know, like a lot of kids our age are starting to use TikTok. It's a very popular app. Actually, Taiwan's quite active on it. She has a very good renegade dance. Uh, if you should, you know, you should go check that out. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I was, uh, it, it, it was quite interesting to see um, that, you know, uh, you know, TikTok has an American CEO and they've been grappling extensively with how to navigate the relationship they have with China, of course, but also now with the United States. They were banned from India 
given the India-China tension escalating. Uh, and now Mike Pompeo has been floating the idea around that, you know, the U.S. is even contemplating banning TikTok. So TikTok is sort of the, you know, epitome of it, perhaps. But when you think about companies contemplating their sort of uh, relationships with both sides, with the U.S. and frankly, with other countries like India as well on one end, and then with China on the other, um, what do you think, like, how, how do these developments impact those sort of corporate strategies? How should companies position themselves when it comes to navigating the sort of dicey uh, trade war of sorts? So companies are clearly trying to steer clear as best they can, and they don't want to be caught up on one side or the other because it's just bad for business. And I think that's a traditional long-standing business principle is you don't take sides because you want sustainable profits uh, and not have these political factors come into play. I, but one of the things that comes up is even if you ban TikTok, uh, what's the enforcement mechanism? You know, these are areas where what happens, you know, when suddenly those who use TikTok, there is a moment of a cooling off period. People don't use it as much, but if they really enjoy the platform, uh, using and accessing it through VPNs and other means, you get into areas where the reach of the government, uh, there, there's some natural hurdles. And so uh, I think when it comes to implementation of these kind of measures, on one side, this is kind of top down from the government perspective. Uh, and then the second, the users and consumers who've grown you know, to uh, like it, and in some cases, indispensable, uh, their view that they want to steer clear of politics, and they're making the choice that they're continuing to use it, and they don't see the type of grave threat. I think in the case of India, there is a big backlash in terms of the border clash. So there is a certain populist element to it. But we see populism rise and ebb. And so if it ebbs again, will we see TikTok being used up, you know, used the adoption and the use of it increasing again? Uh, these are factors that from the bottom-up component, there are ways to access this. So I, I think this is uh, an area where in the past, there, there have been limitations in terms of what governments can do. Uh, and so there, there is an easy uh, statement or an easy condemnation, an easy kind of measure uh, that you can announce as a government. But when it comes to implementation side, it becomes very difficult. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. And I think, you know, even in Hong Kong as well, seeing TikTok sort of like disappear, you know, now I can't watch any of Akash's dances. It's really sad. Um, you can sort of see these, this material impact of how, you know, things that might happen sort of in the news cycle that you don't really necessarily connect with yourself can affect um, just how your life is. And especially with these social media companies, just sort of like the media that you consume as well. Um, I guess sort of switching gears a little bit, just from our perspective as college students, there are many different elements of COVID-19 that sort of threaten, you know, our lives, you know, what we're thinking of doing post-grad, et cetera. You know, obviously a lot of us are in very fortunate positions where, you know, if we are in good households or we're safe, you know, not infected, um, you know, that's so much to be grateful for. But at the same time, I think there is this uncertainty, especially with Harvard's decision in the fall about what to do really and you know how we're going to spend the next couple of years or even this coming semester um so just given your sort of background you know the fact that you've worked in so many different kinds of sectors um you've worked in the us and in asia as well uh, we sort of wanted to get your take and your advice on job security and sort of what we should do in the coming months how we can better align ourselves going on in the world um, and sort of try to tackle this really difficult situation head on. As you mentioned, it's a very difficult time. Uh, and uh, I'm enormously uh, empathetic in terms of the challenges everyone's going through. So on a personal level, I've, I've tried to be as available uh, to students uh, that um, are experiencing that difficult time in terms of trying to offer some advice and uh, some options, generating some options for themselves. Uh, in the cases of limitations on course offerings, you know, trying to figure out ways uh, where I can be an advisor and help out uh, as they want to continue with some projects, but not necessarily under the old kind of formal structures that existed in the past. But to the current challenges, uh, one of the areas to focus on and something that it, in the midst of all of the uncertainty and the difficulties, uh, one area that I think we can focus on is how we can increase our presence in terms of what drives us in terms of these issues. If, if there's a particular North Star issue that fires you up, uh, how, how can you continue to make progress 
how can you continue to move the needle on that North Star issue? If you approach it from that angle, I think there's a lot to be said about formal and informal collaboration and partnerships, uh, starting up organizations, uh, joining organizations, and using some of these platforms to try to advance that. Um, and in doing that, you know, the, the part I think is, is uh, a rare opportunity is because everyone now is on Zoom uh, or some version of video conferencing, it has uh, made access much more straightforward. So to give you an example, in, in the work that we do, uh, bringing uh, current and former practitioners looking at foreign policy issues and the scholars together, in the past, uh, organizing these conferences and these gatherings, there was a tremendous amount of logistics involved as well as budget. But now in terms of doing a virtual conference, it could be a multi-day uh, virtual conference. We are now able to get different uh, you know, speakers and, and officials to interact with each other in a way that uh, was, was much more limited in the past. And so we're trying to use it as uh, a mechanism where we can do more of this. So these type of interactions as we look at some of these pressing foreign policy issues, uh, using this as a convening tool uh, to expand and scale up some of that. And so if there is uh, something to pass on uh, to your generation, your colleagues, uh, it's the idea of trying to use these type of technologies where you can reach out to individuals uh, to engage your group, uh, to have the types of meetings and interactions that may have been more rare or infrequent. I think now it's a function of just scheduling. Uh, it's pretty rare that people will say no when they see the mission and the purpose uh, looking at what your group is trying to do overall. So I, I would focus a lot on that, uh, cognizant that there is a lot of uh, difficulty. Right now, the faculty and staff uh, at Harvard were trying to figure out how to deal with this uh, new ICE uh, announcement about the uh, international students and the visa situation. Um, but on that front, we're trying to figure out different combinations of things uh, to address this and, and uh, be a resource and be helpful for international students. But in the midst of uh, these type of challenges, again, I, I would just focus on trying to figure out how you can get the mission and the purpose of an organization and enable it with this type of technology where you can have that convening power, where in the past it, it was much more difficult. Yeah, that you know definitely makes sense. I think it's a, it's very important uh, to just recognize that everyone's in this position where you know activities kind of screech to a halt, and um, you know students can take advantage of those kinds of relationships they have uh, to seek mentorship and even you know start their own ventures or just try to you know connect with people um, as sort of best they can. I think it's a great opportunity for that, even if it's all virtual and over Zoom, which can be a bit awkward, but still think it's nice and. Um, you know, it, we, we really do, you know, appreciate um, you uh, taking the time to talk to us. Um, it seems like, you know, just based on that one email that we sent to you and you setting aside the time, uh, clearly a lot of students can do that as well um, to sort of people that they want to talk to. Uh, but thanks so much, uh, Professor Park. Um, really, you know, enjoyed our discussion and uh, glad to have you on. Thanks very much for having me. Best of luck to you both.